Just can grab a seat. Welcome to Awaken. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm really excited. Uh, I see some of you guys sporting the uh, red kind of plaid, the Christmas colors. You guys obviously got um, the memo. The rest of you, uh, stop being Scrooges, and let's catch up to the Christmas spirit, okay? Uh, so this morning, we're launching a brand new series called Questions Kids Ask and Parents Are Afraid to Answer. All of you guys have heard one of those questions before. I won't go into all of them. Needless to say, there's some of those as parents, and my wife and I have three kids, where our kids will ask, and we just look at each other like, you're going to take this one? Like, you know, defer? Well, we'll answer that later. Uh, it's bedtime. Um, so we're going to turn our attention to the first question. Is the Bible really true? Uh, two qu quick things before we jump into this question, though. First, uh, this question wasn't generated in a vacuum or generated by a Google search quest. Um, rather, it was asked to the kids in Awakened Children's Ministry. So these questions are from our kids, and we got a lot of them. Some of them were kind of crazy and goofy and silly because that's what kids ask. Some of them were serious. So this is one of those serious questions. Is the Bible really true? The second thing is, if we're honest about this series, question kids ask, all these questions are not just questions from kids, but they're also questions that we want to know, too. And we're just big kids. That's all we are at heart. And see, the reason kids ask these things is, is kids always wonder why. Kids always just wonder, how does things work? Kids want to know how the world works. Kids want to know how God works. But adults, we've lost that a little bit. Maybe we're just too busy and we don't have the time. Maybe it's harder to learn when we get old. Maybe it's harder to learn because we're just saturated with responsibilities and entertainment. And so learning gets pushed on the third or fourth or fifth priority list. So these are questions that maybe we could make time to answer for ourselves and answer for our children. But again, maybe they're a little complex. We don't know where to start. Maybe we just don't have the time. And so we keep kicking the can down the road, just like we keep telling our kids, I'll, I'll answer that to you later. Or that's a really long answer. We'll, we'll tackle that later. This series, we're going to tackle it now. So I think maybe if we tackle these questions in thoughtful, simple ways, we can rediscover what it means to have faith like a child. So I'd love to start with a story. The story is about a, the, the, a family, uh, the Mason family. Uh, the Masons lived long ago. Uh, they were writers, scribes, scholars, and copyists. And one day, uh, a fire erupted in their library, in their workplace. Um, even worse, the fire began to spread to the surrounding homes. Soon, the entire city was an inferno. Um, some of you might have gone through a, a fire like this or a natural disaster that was devastating to you, um, devastating to your business. As any family did, though, they rushed in and they saved what they did. They saved their scrolls and they saved their books and they saved their kids. Probably should have started with kids first. But... They saved those things, and devastated, they fled. They fled the ruins of their burned city to find shelter and refuge with neighboring villages and families. And slowly, they started over. 
slowly they began their business again of copying important documents for people, such as court cases, merchant reports, genealogies, army records, even religious texts. But so much was destroyed. They'd have to start all over again. Um, Asher Mason was the most famous member of this family. And after the fire, he was able to begin to collect and compile a large dictionary to help them remember. And they continued to copy and write and to study and serve as scribes. But they always wondered what they had lost. One of the stories that they copied was the story of Abraham. It was one of their favorite stories, in fact. And we're going to look at the question, is the Bible really true through the lens of the story of Abraham? The simple answer to the question, is the Bible really true, is as follows. God has never made a promise that he failed to keep. And so we're going to start with Abraham. How many of you remember the, the song, Father Abraham? Growing up, I was, I was raised in the church, and so Father Abraham was a, a great kid. I remember just growing up in the church, that was one of my favorite songs. You got to, to go into to Sunday school or vacation Bible school, and it was movements and right arm, left arm, and, you know, you might have hit another kid, but you were having fun. And it was just a fun song, you know, with community, getting energy out. And then I remember kind of becoming a teenager and, and a college student and serving at youth camps and children's ministries and vacation Bible schools, and the kids really just love that song. But it's a long song, especially when they want to keep hitting repeat, encore. And now as an adult, they're like, let's play and sing Father Abraham. And you're like, oh my gosh, sure. And they want to do it again. And you're like, I'm tired. Uh, kind of happened last night in our household. Uh, it's bedtime and, you know, my wife and I are exhausted after a long day of parenting and and my wife just like, guys, I have zero energy for y'all. Let's go to bed. And Corbin, or, uh, Noah just says, well, Mom, I have like eight energy. I'm like, all right, all right. Yeah, so I'm holding Finn in the rocker, just trying to put him to sleep. And uh, Corbin says, Mom, I have like a thousand energy. And then he goes, no, I have like 6,000 energy. And uh, my wife are like, yeah, we know you do, kid. Like... And that's what Father Abraham's like when you start singing that song. It's like, oh my gosh. But God made six promises to Abraham. And so we're just going to read the text, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Again, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And we're going to read six promises that God made to Abraham. Starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. These six promises, uh, and some of them continue throughout uh, the Genesis narrative cycle because Abraham is a long story in Genesis, just like the song. But these six promises, if we were to distill them down, they're this. One, many descendants. Too numerous to count. Two, 
Everyone would have a relationship with God, who would walk with God, who would be in God's presence. Abraham would have land, the promised land. Fourth, the nations would be blessed through Abraham and his children and his offspring. Abraham would be a father of nations, and last kings would come, rulers would come from the line of Abraham. And so in the ancient world, when you make a promise like this, you enter into something called a covenant. And a covenant was a binding agreement with consequences and blessings. If the promise was broken, there'd be consequences. If the promise was upheld and honored, there would be blessings. And so as a sign of agreement for a covenant, the parties would enter into a contract. And God enters into covenant a few short chapters later in Genesis 15, and he gives a sign to Abram. But what's really fascinating is how God enters into this covenant. Oftentimes it'd be over a meal, and there'd be some kind of sacrifice made, and the parties of the covenant would kind of walk through the sacrifices that they've made, saying in some ways we are binding ourselves to our word, to our promise. But Genesis 15 has this story where instead of the two parties, Abraham and God, walking through the sacrifice, Abraham actually falls asleep. And not only that, while he's falling asleep, he has uh, a nightmare where thick darkness and terror overwhelms him. And so he's not walking through the covenant. There's only one person that's walking through the covenant, and that is God himself. And so when we begin to talk about these promises that God has never failed to keep, we have to realize that we don't walk through and keep our promises. God alone is the one who keeps those promises. And the sign of that covenant that God gave to Abram was that you would circumcise your offspring. And so we come back to this truth. God has never made a promise he failed to keep. The story arc of Scripture is one where God is authoring and keeping promises, and we are really good at breaking them. And so is the Bible really true? Is just a story of how God keeps promise after promise after promise, even when we are faithless. And so I could stand up here and, and I could rattle off facts about the history or accuracy of the Bible. But that's not how we teach our children scripture, is it? We teach our children through stories. In fact, we learn best through stories. And so God has chosen to write one beautiful story, a drama of redemption set on a cosmic scale, set on the world stage. And so he chooses to use the story of Abraham. So we're going to jump into how God has answered every single one of his promises. Um, before we start, uh, this is a Q&A series. So if you have questions um, about this story, if you have questions even again about is the Bible really true, feel free to text those into or email those into awakenqna at gmail.com. We're going to take a few minutes at the end to tackle those questions. Awakenqna at gmail.com. So that first promise, many descendants, too numerous to count. God gives Abraham, who's old, and his wife, Sarah, who's old, broken, busted, and rusted bodies, children. He gives them two. 
One is, um, one is Isaac and the other is Ishmael. One child is one of promise, but the other is a child of manipulation. You see, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they tried to manipulate God's promise and get what they wanted from God, not via God. We call it a child of manipulation, but what it really is is a child of the flesh. And we do that too. We try to get things from God in our own flesh instead of waiting for his promises to come true. But God, again, he delivers on his promise. He gives them a child. God will be diligent and faithful in bringing about his promises at his timing. And we need to be very careful to not claim our own wishes and wants as God promises. By the second book of the Bible, Exodus, Abraham's descendants were so numerous from just these two children that Egypt decided to enslave them and turn them into a workforce. And not just a workforce, they were so numerous that Egypt began the first industry and practice of abortion recorded. Egypt embarked on population control. So the second promise, that Abraham would have a relationship with God. He would be with God in, in God's presence. Not only was Abraham walking with God and talking with God, but his descendants would too. As I shared earlier, the second book of the Bible, Exodus, is this story about how God's presence and mighty outstretched hand rescued his people and brought them to his mountain at Sinai where he gave them his law, his presence, and his tabernacle. And they got to see a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day marking God's presence with his people. Third, land. God gave Abraham land, the promised land. He rescued them from Egypt and gave them a brand new land flowing with riches and wealth if they continue to obey covenant. And land, when we look at scripture, especially the Old Testament, when we talk about God giving his people land and rest and the promised land, they're always thinking Eden. God is taking us back to Eden. We are one with him. We have a right relationship with him. Everything was good in the garden. And this is their understanding of land for the Hebrew people, that things will be made right and be at shalom again. Fourth, the nations will be blessed. Again, back to Exodus. Everything is about Exodus. And Exodus is described in Egypt not just as the Hebrew people leaving, but actually as a mixed multitude leaving. And what this means is that there's mixed ethnic communities and races all leaving Egypt. It's not just one ethnicity. I think maybe we skip that part when we read. But it says in Scripture that there's a mixed multitude that leaves Egypt, a blend of races and people. God was grafting the nations into his promised land, and eventually that new promised land would have a king and a temple, and all the nations would be blessed 
by those kings and by the temple, the only place in the ancient world where you could worship the one true God and the only place in the ancient world where you walked into the temple and there wasn't an idol. Nothing was fashioned. Because God's people were his image and they had no need to worship an idol. Fifth, kings will come from his line. King David comes from the tribe of Judah. Judah, the son of Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac. And Isaac is the son of Abraham. King David was Israel's greatest anointed. Last, Abraham was a father of nations. This is a more confusing nation because how can one man father many nations? And I think in order for us to understand, we need to turn to the New Testament. As I shared earlier, the story of Abraham takes up a large portion of the Genesis narrative cycle. But Abraham is also named over 75 times in the New Testament. The second thing about the New Testament is that the promises given to Abraham came before the law. And so all of the early disciples and apostles reached back not to the law in order to teach the people, but they reached back to the promise. And then the second reason why we're going back to the New Testament is the story of Abraham, these six promises that we see that God kept with one man. They're actually just a pattern. They're just a type. They're a shadow of what was to come. And the story of the New Testament is that God is going to keep even bigger promises. God has never made a promise to fail to keep. And so Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. And this is the renewal of the covenant. Christ on the cross. And where are we? We are sleeping dead in our sins. We are in terror and great darkness. But God makes a covenant with himself, with his son, by having his son take on all the sin of ours. God walks through the sacrifice and we have a chance just to witness it and believe in it and have faith. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the fact that we are bystanders in darkness while God pays for our sins. And the sign of this covenant is baptism. Baptism not by works, but by faith. By faith we are saved, and once saved, then we are commanded to be baptized. This is the covenant that God made with Christ, his son, that we are ushered into. So how does that relate to Abraham? Again, Abraham's just the shadow and just the type. First, all those who believe in Christ are children of the promise. A promise Abraham first believed in making. Abraham truly has many descendants because of God's promise. We are all children of Abraham. Abraham has many sons and daughters, just like the kid's song does. And the kid's song is long, and you can put it on repeat. Because that's the same thing God is still doing. He is still making children from Abraham through Jesus Christ. Second, Christ was God incarnate. He brought back the presence and glory of God back to humanity so we can walk with God. 
Christ brought relationship back. So just as Abraham walked with God, we too can walk with God. Third land, the promised land. God has given his people a new land. It's not America. It's a heavenly city. And the church is meant to be a mini heaven on earth where the one true God is worshipped. Just as Abraham was promised land, so we too are promised land, a heavenly land, Eden. Fourth, all those who believe in Christ are grafted into the kingdom, community, and family of God. There is no race, there is no color, there is no ethnicity, there is no socioeconomic barrier in God's adopted family. Abraham blessed the nations just as Christ blessed the nation by taking every possible barrier that we can erect. Fifth, Christ is the ruler, judge, and king of the nations. He is a direct descendant of Abraham. Just as King David was descended from Abraham, so too is Christ descended from King David. He's descended from Abraham. And this is important because Matthew and Luke, they start their gospels off with genealogies. Anytime you see a genealogy in the Bible, you should say pause, because God's getting ready to do something new. And that genealogy is kick off with the birth of Jesus Christ. God is doing something new. And then last, the father of nations, Abraham. He can only be called the father of nations because of Christ. Because the promise that God gave him. We are descendants and heirs of that promise. So I'd like to go back to our question. How do we know the Bible is really true? If God can keep his promises to one man over the course of a millennium, then he is showing that his word is trustworthy. And not only that, how much more the promises given and fulfilled to Abraham reveal the greater promises in Christ. And this is how relationships work, is it not? If you prove trustworthy in a small thing, you're trustworthy in a larger thing. This is how we parent, right? We allow our children to be faithful in small things and we give them more responsibilities. This is how we discern even in relationships. Can I trust this person? If relationships work this way, then wow, the story arc of Scripture becomes all the more beautiful. If God kept all of his promises, all six promises to Abraham, even though Abraham died and didn't see their fruition, how much more is he going to keep the promises made in Christ? And this is God's move throughout all of Scripture, going from what is small to what is greater, from what is light what is heavy. If God has shown himself faithful to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt, how much more is he going to show himself faithful to rescue us from sin? If God has shown himself faithful to bring his people to a new promised land, how much more is he going to bring us to a promised land where tears are going to be wiped away and there's not going to be any more sorrow and pain? suffering. And this is what God is saying through the story arc of Scripture. If you can trust me in small things, you can trust me in big things. If you can trust the Word of God, 
that it is true, historically accurate, reliable. Not just because of the data, but because of the stories found therein. Then you can trust God today. So I'd like to go back to this Mason family, um, the family whose home burned to the ground. I left a few details out. Um, the Mason family, they were actually a group of Jewish scribes and scholars dedicated to the preservation of the Old Testament, what they called the Tanakh, the law, the wisdom books, the prophets. And their real name wasn't Mason, it was actually the Masorites. In some of your Bibles, you'll see um, sometimes parentheses around something, and that parentheses just has in all caps, NT. It means Masorite text. The most prominent family was the Ben Asher family. And for two millennia, they have faithfully preserved the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. But can you imagine to lose so much of your work in a fire? I don't know if you guys want to put up great pictures up. Um, this was Jerusalem in 70 AD when Vespasian's son was a Roman Empire, Titus, sacked the city, killed the inhabitants, burned the temple, left no stone upon itself because in the building of the temple, Herod and the Hebrews had lined the mortar with gold dust. Left no stone, just as Jesus said. And so Jewish families fled the sacking of the city, losing so much. And this family that was dedicated to making sure that the scripture was passed down, lost much of their work. And again, as we shared earlier, they run in and they grab what they can and they flee. And then they settle back down again and they preserve and they dedicate themselves to the preservation of the work that they've faithfully done. But you'd have to wonder, aren't they thinking a couple questions? One of those questions is, where are your promises, God? What about our land? It's not our land anymore. Are we really your people? You've just killed and enslaved us again. Is the Bible really true? Because now we've lost we're having to compile it from all sorts of places. We're having to start over. Is this text really true? Are we missing something? You can imagine their frustration, their pain, their suffering, and their deepest question, is the Bible really true? Is Scripture true? It's a question that kids ask. It's a question that adults So uh, about 70 years ago, a shepherd uh, in Israel found a series of caves with a large amount of scrolls. In fact, over 225 scrolls of the Old Testament books were found. What's fascinating is these scrolls were all dated 100 years before Jerusalem was burned in 70 A.D. And so you can imagine how exciting this is for this family. You can imagine that, wow, does our work over the last two millennia, does it faithfully match these scrolls? But you also imagine the tension and the anxiety. Well, some of you guys are thinking like, you know, this is just a nerdy question. 
for history buffs and pastor geeks. But here's why this matters to us. Here's the truth. Our copies of the Old Testament were translated from Hebrew to English in the time of the Reformation from only one source. The Masoretic Reddit text. We used their Hebrew text for our English Bible. And by the time these caves were discovered, we've been using that text for over 400 years. So this very much matters to us. Is the Bible really true? If they got it wrong, then we've gotten it wrong. If the texts don't match, then we have been believing, living, preaching, and making things up. And you can imagine the tension. Tension for 20 years as scholars translated and waited. And after a long time, and there's a fascinating story here that I don't have time to go into. But after a long, long time, it came out. And there was over a 99.5% match on accuracy. And the differences were in grammar, syntax, maybe a different word choice here or there. And you can imagine the Dan Asher family weeping Um, one variation does stand out um, because the Dead Sea Scrolls, they even restored a couple of verses that were lost. And, and the Maserites and the Ben Asher family knew the verses were lost. A great example comes from Psalm 143, pardon, Psalm 145. They knew it was lost because the verse says an acrostic. Um, we kind of call that acronym now, but an acrostic basically started every letter of the Hebrew alphabet with like the first um, verse. And so you go down and, you know, you have a verse and that matches the, the, the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And they were missing part of it. So they knew something was wrong. They knew they were off. And can you imagine their delight to find that one of the scrolls that they have in their possession is Psalm 145. And so this family eagerly rolls open the scrolls. What does this say? Will you turn with me? Psalm 145, verse 13. <sighs> Psalm 145, 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. How do we know the Bible is true? God has never made a promise that he failed to keep. And so when we teach our children this, when we talk to them about how do we know the Bible is true, Let's do it through story. Because we can give them data and we can tell them, well, because mommy and daddy says it so. Like, you'll learn about it eventually. Let's teach them through story. 
Because all of Scripture is this giant story arc that's saying God is faithful and true and good. So how can we do that with our children? Um, I hope this morning, um, I, haven't, I haven't taught this to Noah and Corbin and Phineas yet. Um, those are my three kids. But I hope this morning has been an example. You've got to take a little bit of time to teach through the rich, beautiful story of Abraham. Um, Father Abraham is a long song. But so is studying scripture with your family and your kids. It's not a short game. It's a long game. Um, one of the things that, that I get to do that's a great joy for me is I get to read to my kids at night. Not every night. Um, one of the awesome things that my wife does in Advent and holiday seasons is she goes through the Advent calendar. And we give our children opportunities to learn the story of God. Is the Bible really true? Teach your children the story of God. Develop a rhythm that works for your family. Some families, maybe they can't do it at bedtime or dinner time, but maybe they do it in the morning. Acts 2.47, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why as parents we need to be taking the time to learn the story of God for ourselves. Because if we're not learning the rich story of God for ourselves, how in the world are we going to teach it to our children? Acts 2, 47. So, uh, apologize, Acts 2, 39. So, Acts 2, 39. Peter's telling the Hebrew people, for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The promise of salvation and the truth that the Bible is really true, it's not just for us, it's for our children. God is a good God who is saving nations and generations and children. So application points, would we study God's word. Some resources to give you, then we'll tackle some questions. So um, again, at this point, if you have some questions, if, if you want to talk, um, uh, make a comment or, or ask something. Again, we took a very narrow lens, a very narrow approach, just looking at the story of Abraham. So if you have other questions about the reliability um, or authority um, or historicity of scripture, is it really true or not, um, text those in. But some resources that might help you um, is uh, Casket Empty is a, a great uh, resource. They're just developing uh, children's timelines for it. So it teaches uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, so it's really awesome. Um, and that's, that's good for children all the way through adults. So Casket Empty, you can just um, Google that. Um, they have an Old Testament and a New Testament. Um, and uh, it's, it's actually, um, again, it's, it's a cool acronym as well. Um, and it stands for creation, Abraham, Sinai, kings, um, exile, and temple, casket, the Old Testament. And then it stands uh, empty, uh, the expectations, Messiah, Pentecost, teachings, and yet to come. So it's a really, really cool acronym. Um, 
a great resource for high schoolers um, and uh, even maybe uh, uh, college as well. It's called the uh, No series. Know Why You Believe. The series editor is Justin Holcomb. And they've got four out of the six books um, finished. So it's a really great series. Uh, and then uh, a great resource even in college. Um, it's an it's app on your phone as well. Um, is uh, Reasonable Faith. So it's by Dr. William Lane Craig. So there's resources for us. When we get asked tough questions by our children, sometimes it's okay to say, hey, I, I don't know that right now, but let me get on it. Um, let me see if we got any questions. Again, if you have questions, feel free to, to text them in. Um, this was, uh, I was talking to my co-pastor, this was a challenging series to teach because part of me, I wanted to tell you guys so much about manuscript traditions, so much about history, so much about archaeology. I wanted to nerd out with you guys. Um, but... It's how do we teach our children these things? And uh, sometimes we just need to, to tell our, our children stories. And sometimes we need to tell ourselves stories as well. John, did you guys have any questions? Is there one up there? Awesome. Cool. Well, um, next week it's Q&A again. So come with some questions um, or just save them for the next two weeks for Frank. So... You know, you guys give them all the harder questions. Um, but let me pray for us. Uh, Father, I thank you um, for your story, God, that you've invited us into. I thank you that you've uh, made covenant with us while we were asleep in our sins, while we were in darkness and terror, God. Lord, I thank you for your goodness, and I thank you that your promises never fail. Lord, I thank you that you keep your promises. Lord, I pray that we would make that same promise to our children. God, let's just get them in the story of Scripture. Lord, uh, as this Christmas season approaches, let us celebrate um, your presence and your promise to never leave us or forsake us and how you went about that by sending a babe in a manger. Lord, we worship and rejoice alongside shepherds and angels. We witness and rejoice alongside the patriarchs and kings of old. Would we witness and rejoice alongside our children?